But you ought to thank me before I die For the gravel in your guts and the spit in your eye Cause I'm the son of a bitch that named you Sue Yeah, well what could I do? What could I do? I got all choked up and I threw down my gun Called him a paw and he called me a son And I come away with a different point Good morning, good morning, good morning Sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond That's the man in black kicking things off for us On the Lone Star Outdoors show Powered by Dallas Safari Club Thanks to our presenting sponsors as well Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris I'm Cable Smith And there is no place I'd rather be than talking Hunting, fishing the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks. So thanks for making time for us today as uh, it is a treat to be here with you each and every week. And man, let me tell you, I'm excited about this weekend because as soon as we get off the air, I'm climbing a tree. I might even put my bow down and pick my rifle up. Just depends on what kind of mood I'm in. But uh, the rut is going on. It's in full swing as well. So it is a great time to get into the whitetail woods. That is for sure. But I don't care. Bow, rifle, muzzleloader, shotgun, whatever you're using. I've told you many times, if there was a rock throwing season and you could ethically kill a deer with a rock, I'd, I'd be there for that too. I don't care. I just want to hunt. I know many of you feel the same way. So good luck this week with whatever weapon you're using. Hope you find success and that your aim is true. Uh, we've got a great show lined up for you today, so you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the campfire here. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos, and we are going to rock and roll. Off the top, an outdoor legend will join us. Uh, he's had over 6,000 articles published. He's written 33 books on everything from bear hunting to whitetail property management to Dutch oven cooking. He is truly a renaissance man, a throwback. They don't make him like Jay Wayne fears anymore, so we are thrilled to have uh, outdoor writing icon Jay Wayne Fears join us here momentarily, and we're going to take a look back at the way things used to be, and I mean way back, uh, because I'm fascinated by how the early frontiersmen, hunters, and trappers, mountain men, how did they scratch out a living with such inferior gear, weapons, I mean, even the stuff that they cooked with uh, was heavy and cumbersome. And it must have been a miserable life, to be honest with you, uh, a hard one. And I don't know if they were just tougher than we are today or how they navigated through the harsh elements that they faced on a regular basis. But uh, I'm interested in finding out more about it. And Jay Wayne has researched it many times over and is an authority on uh, the way things used to be. So uh, we'll be joined by him here momentarily. And we'll get into a myriad of topics concerning uh, those first Western big game hunters and trappers that really paved the way for you and I today. Uh, then we will spend a couple segments with Eric Harrison. He is a longtime guide in the Texas Hill Country. He's fascinated, much like myself, by axis steer, and he uh, came up with the first and only call of its kind, the easy axis axis deer call. And he actually uses the call to scream in axis bucks. And oftentimes year round, uh, he incorporates rattling, I do believe, into some of his sets. So uh, really interesting stuff because if you've ever heard an axis buck scream, it's um, 
it's kind of eerie, almost like an elk bugling, a little different. Uh, but we'll have him blow the call on the air, and that'll give you the best idea of what it actually sounds like. I might even make a fool of myself and uh, try to use the call as well. I haven't had much time to practice with it, so uh, I might fall flat on my face. So anyway, y'all can have a good laugh at my expense. That's what's on the docket for today. Uh, should be a good show. I'm certainly excited about it. A couple other things here. Don't forget that our November Photo of the Month contest is going on right now. We've got a Lone Star Outdoor Show Edition Bison Cooler. It's a 50-quart. Retails for like 330 bucks, And we're going to give it away to our November winner. So send in your best hunting, fishing, or outdoor photo to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. Better yet, post it on our Facebook page wall or tag us with LSOS Photo Contest on Instagram, and we'll get you entered. And then our 12 monthly winners will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt trophy axis deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Who knows? Maybe we'll even use the easy axis axis deer call uh, to call in a big buck for you. But uh, you can't win unless you send in a photo. Uh, let's do a quick giveaway. I've got the new Turnpike Troubadours record here. Uh, a long way from your heart. I've been jamming this thing for about the last month. It's one of the best records I've heard in the last few years. So we'll give away a copy of this plus a Costa Del Mar cap and t-shirt to today's winner. So text in the word Turnpike. That's Turnpike to 214-289-7807 and you could win today's prize pack. Here's a little Turnpike taking us into the break. We'll be right back with Jay Wayne Fears right here on the Long Star Outdoor Show. There's no telling what's in store along the 35 corridor. Do you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease? We have the solution. The system hog trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The system is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Hey, North Texas sports fans, this is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Hello, everybody. I'm Bill Dance, and you're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. And young horses are known to break a man's bones, to tear him apart at the seams. Even though he knows he can still be free. 
Strong Forces, the name of that one from the Eric Beatty Band, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm your host, Cable Smith. Thank you so much for letting me ride shotgun with you today. It's a treat to be talking outdoors with you. Also want to thank our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. And man, oh man, I'm excited about our first guest today. When you talk about somebody who's been there and done that as a member of the outdoor media, Jay Wayne Fears is the man to talk to. I guarantee you everyone out there listening has read at least one of his articles over the years on a myriad of topics. Uh, But before we are joined by Wayne, this segment of the show brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas, available this fall in the camo can. Grab a 12-pack on your way to the deer lease this season, and remember... Celebrate knocking down that big buck with an ice-cold Lone Star beer. Lone Star beer, the national beer of Texas. All right, uh, let's bring on our first guest. Like I said, Jay Wayne Fears has won uh, more awards than you can shake a stick at. He's had over 6,200 articles published and written 33 books on hunting, fishing, outdoor cooking, and backcountry living. It's an honor to welcome Jay Wayne Fears to the show. Thank you very much, Cable. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So, uh, first of all, how has your fall hunting season been? Well, so far, so good. I've been able to take, do a little bit of traveling, take a few critters, and now I'm back down where I live and uh, getting ready for the opening of whitetail season, which is, is a big event down in this part of the country. Yeah, and, and for our listeners, tell everyone where you're at exactly. Well, I live out in the middle of nowhere on the <laughs> Alabama-Tennessee line, so um, I'm in the southeast. Uh-huh. And I understand you grew up in the woods more so than, than most folks. I mean, your dad was a professional trapper, and so by your early teens, I mean, you were, well, a lot of kids were playing sports. You were in the woods uh, solo a lot of the time. Yeah. My, my dad was a trapper, so I grew up on a trap line, and um, without you know, trappers back in those days didn't make a whole lot of money, so we didn't have a lot of fancy gear or anything, so uh, I didn't realize how tough it was until after I got in high school and got to seeing how everybody else lived and realized, hey, we were poor and I didn't even know it. <laughs> well, then I guess you're not really poor, you know? No, I didn't think so, and yeah. I wouldn't trade that background for anything. Yes, sir. Well, so you, you went on to uh, serve in the Army, uh, and and I don't know if that was, was that before you attended Auburn? Yeah, I, I spent a few years in the Army, and then with the Vietnam GI Bill, I got the opportunity to go to college, so I went to Auburn mm-hmm. in wildlife management and went on and got a master's degree over at Georgia. Right. And by the time you were out of graduate school, uh, you were or even while you were still in school, you were working for 11 different outdoor magazines. Yeah, when I was working on my graduate degree, I was writing, I had contracts with 11 outdoor magazines at that time, and that's part of the way I paid my way through graduate school. (laughs) Very cool. Well, yeah, and and fast forward to today, you've had over uh, 6,200 articles published, written 33 books on a a myriad of topics, and, uh, and it doesn't seem like you're slowing down any yet. No, I don't want to slow down. I, <laughs> I enjoy what I do too much, Cable. This this is a lot of fun and doing research on these books and magazine articles. And I have my own shooting range here on my property, and we uh, do a lot, especially when it comes to outdoor cooking and stuff. We do a lot of the photography and research here. So mm-hmm. uh, 
Yeah, I, as long as I can get up and put one foot in front of the other, I'm going to keep doing what I do. I mean, you've got a book, you said, going back to the cooking, you've got a book just on outdoor cooking with a Dutch oven. Yeah, that's a new book that just came out. Uh, that book was released May of this year. And I did it with Lodge Manufacturing Company, which is, you know, the largest producer of cast iron skillets and Dutch ovens in the world. Hmm. And uh, so we did a book on the history of Dutch oven cooking, and we took it all the way back to where the first cast iron was developed and brought it forward. And we've got 30, 40 recipes in the book. And so far, so good. The book's selling real well. Awesome. Well, yeah, that uh, that caught my eye because going back to my first really hardcore backpacking trip, I went on with my dad and, and his buddies, um, and I guess I was late teens, early 20s maybe. God, it's been 15, 16 years ago when I really started, uh, when I developed this passion for, for the backcountry anyway. And, and as the youngest member, they handed me about, I, I don't know how much it weighed, Wayne, but I felt like 20 pounds, but they handed me this Dutch oven. They said, "Here, young buck, haul that up the mountain." And, yeah. and we're talking, you know, seven seven mile hike into ten thousand feet <laughs> in New Mexico. Yeah. So that was my, I was happy when my brother was uh, started coming along too, so I could pass that uh, that back that down to them. So yeah, cast iron Dutch ovens really not made for backpacking, but yeah. I've run into them in a lot of countries in some of the most remote places in the world, so they get there some way. Yeah. Well, you can't beat a Oh, a nice Dutch oven meal, or I think we used it for cobbler and all sorts of kind of stuff. But yeah, uh, anything you do on the home uh, stove oven, you can do in a Dutch oven. Yeah. Well, so so what I wanted to discuss today, and going back to my love for you know the backcountry and and hunting and hiking and and fishing and camping in those remote wilderness areas, um, I was reading this piece you have published here in American Frontiersman. It's titled Grub on the go, and, and I want to explore a little bit more than just the, the food that these early explorers and hunters um, ate. I guess let's start with, with their clothing and their gear, because today, you know, we all just go out and buy the the newest technology The you know, we might spend $1,000 on our hunting gear, and then you top it off with the latest waterproof boots, and uh, your comfort level is, is, <laughs> is really not that bad. Uh, these early these early hunters and outdoorsmen, uh, they didn't have that. So I don't, I don't know if they were just a lot tougher than us or I'm really curious to know how they dealt with those adverse conditions. Yeah, I, th- I think it's all what you're accustomed to. If you've never, well, I'll use myself, for example, if you've never experienced air conditioning, you don't know that, that you're missing it mm-hmm. until you walk. In my case, when I was a teenager, I walked in a store that had air conditioning. And I said, I don't know what this is, but someday I'm going to have it. <laughs> and the same thing with clothing. If if you've never had the high-tech clothing we have today, and you grew up in a little two-, three-room cabin, which never really was warm in the winter and never really was cool in the summer, you get that's, that's the norm. Mm-hmm. So if that's the norm, you don't know what you're missing. And most of these old-timers, whether they were long hunters or mountain men, when they first left civilization, they probably didn't have on buckskins and moccasins. They probably had on the shoes of that particular era, and they probably had linsey woolen clothing and that sort of thing. 
but you stay out there for six, eight months, that stuff goes away. And then suddenly you're making your own buckskins, your brain tanning deer hides or elk hides, as the case might be. And you start making your own clothing. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, it's all the comfort level is what you're accustomed to. Mm-hmm. I've worked in some third world countries where I, I saw people who we were either burning up or freezing to death, and they were extremely comfortable. Well, so as far as the the clothing, though, I mean, how did the how did those let's just say buckskin or elkskin or, or even a bear hide, whatever it was that they had killed and were wearing, essentially, uh, how did that stuff stack up to the elements? Because you you see, and, and some of it's probably just Hollywood and stuff, but you see these Western movies and um stuff like seraphim falls or the revenant and these guys trudging through the snow uh did that stuff even repel water no not really uh, if you rubbed enough bear grease on it it would then it becomes extremely heavy i've worn buckskins for a lot of my career and you get those things wet and they're miserable that's the only way i know how to state it it's, mm-hmm. those people were flat miserable and you can bet every opportunity they had wearing that type of clothing, they were under a rock shelter or some type of shelter, and they had a fire going, and they tried to keep those buckskins dry because they get real slimy when they get wet, too. Hmm. Okay. So, uh, you, you know, again, if you know you got to travel and you got to stay on the move, no matter how miserable it is, you're going to keep moving. But uh, I can assure you those guys, they, they laid up on during a lot of the bad weather. Okay. Oh yeah. That makes sense. And so, so they tried to avoid it. You don't, they're not walking around in three feet of snow, like you see in the movies all the time. Thinking, not unless they have to. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, and then as far as their, their eating habits, uh, I think it was very different, but at the same time, uh, just reading your article here, kind of similar as far as jerky and water. I mean, those are two of my mainstays in the, in the mountains for sure. Well, that was a freeze-dried food at the time, uh-huh. and um, you know what? It, whatever they caught in their traps, of course, they ate, and uh, whatever occasionally they would encounter a deer or an elk or whatever bear, then of course they had plenty of food then. But not having any way to preserve it, jerky was the only way, and consequently, that was the main trail food of that era. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I think it's probably still very similar today, uh, for, for me anyway. Um, and then also bacon. I think bacon was a real treat back then. But yeah, that well, was... they could get it, but uh, it's kind of like the clothing. It After you were gone four or five months, whatever, bacon and, and flour and that sort of thing you carried with you, it was gone. Yeah. And so then in the case of not so much the long hunters, but in the case with the mountain men, you know, they they interacted with the Indians some more than others, but uh, they ate whatever the Indians ate. And the Indians ate a lot of food. They had a flour they made out of cattail. They had a flour they made out of acorns. And uh, the mountain men were quick to adapt to that when they could. Yeah, well, yeah, and then some other more obscure stuff, I mean, as far as just whatever meat was readily available, a lot of time it was rattlesnake. Oh, yeah, and, and rattlesnake's not bad at all. Oh, no. Was. Yeah. It's beautiful meat. It's just got an awful lot of ribs in it. So they weren't they weren't picky. That's for sure. Um, and then as far as uh, their their, I guess it, I mean it's probably just water. But at, at some point, 
I'm sure these guys like to hot pot, a pot of coffee just like you and I do. Sure. And they improvised a lot. Um, for instance, using the root of the dandelion as a coffee substitute. If you dry it, pound it out. They also made coffee from uh, white oak acorns. And uh, so they found substitutes depending on you know where they were. There were there were plants, especially you get out west. There's a lot of plants that it's not coffee and it doesn't have caffeine in it, but it was a good hot drink substitute. The long hunters in part, uh, the eastern part of the country depended on the sassafras tree, and they would they during the winter they'd take the roots of the sassafras and make hot sassafras tea out of it. So um, they, when the coffee ran out, they still had their hot drinks when they could. Okay, interesting. I mean, there's nothing that is that will lift your spirits more than you know coming in uh, from a bad day of weather. You know, you're hunting in the mountains. You're 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 so tired. You don't even want to cook dinner. But that that hot drink will certainly <laughs> lift your spirits for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So basically, they they drank water, ate jerky and bacon when they could. Uh, other meat. What about stuff like bread and beans? Did they have any variants to their diet at all? Yeah, when they could, you know, if you read a lot of the writings from the mountain men that could write, and same thing with the long hunters, the, anytime they could get bread, they would take it. And it was always a very, very simple bread in most cases. Uh, here in the east, it was hoe cake, which is nothing more than cornmeal and water for all practical purposes. And in Bannock, which is well known through throughout Canada and throughout the Rocky Mountains during the Mountain Man era, that wasn't anything more than a flour of some to- sort and water. And if they could come up with any baking powder, they'd put that in there. Hmm. But most of it was nothing more than either cornmeal and water or some type flour and water. Hmm. Okay, so sounds pretty bland. <laughs> it was pretty bland, but uh, when you're really hungry and you haven't had anything to eat three or four days, that's pretty good. Yeah, there's no there's no doubt about that. Yeah, you take a pound of bannock and a beaver tail, and you can go, you can go on that. Yeah, well, and, and that beaver tail is high in, in, in calories, which is uh, important for that kind of uh, lifestyle for sure. Yep. Um, well, so as far as their gear, I mean, most of my stuff is, you know, we put it on our back and we hike in seven, eight miles and spend a week in the backcountry. And I know a lot of our listeners do the same. Uh, they Gear is a lot lighter today than it was back then. So imagine if they didn't have horses, uh, they were pretty well screwed, to say the least. Yeah, well, they were very limited. It, you talk about living off the land. That's what they really did. Mm-hmm. And that's especially true with long hunters here in the East in the 1700s. Most of them couldn't afford a horse. And they were they were exploring Kentucky and southern Ohio and Tennessee and Alabama on foot. And they, they would carry in their possibles bag pretty much everything they needed, which was very, very little. So you're, you're truly living off the land as you go. It's a little easier to do here in the east than it was out in the west. And fortunately, the mountain men did have horses, and they could take pack animals with them and set up a base camp and work out of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, then, as far as their their weapons are concerned, uh, these these early guys. I mean, <laughs> I mean, 
we're we're all about one shot, one kill. You know, that's what everyone should strive for. But uh, we have much better rifles, better optics. Everything we use is infinitely better than the primitive weapons that they had, uh, which I imagine just added another element of, I don't know how these guys survived, to be honest with you. <laughs> it was tough. Yeah. <laughs> but again, it, it all depends on what you're used to. Mm-hmm. Uh, if living in a settlement was according to our standards, today was tough under the best of conditions. And then these guys moved from that into the back country. I don't think it, it bothered them that much. A lot of them didn't make it, obviously. You know, it, if you really earned the, the name Long Hunter or Mountain Man, that meant you survived a couple of years at least. And a lot of guys didn't make it that long. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them starved to death. Yeah. And so the the early rifles that these guys would hunt with were what, what flintlock or flintlock. In the case of the long hunters, it, there were flintlocks. And then by the time the mountain man, uh, the mountain man era started in about 1820 or so, then we began to have percussion lock rifles, and they changed. You know, everybody could changed over. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, as someone who likes to muzzleloader hunt and takes advantage of, you know, I put in for a lot of those tags. Uh, for mule deer and elk every year and like to try to fancy myself as, as someone who can reload and, you know, under a minute. But still, if you miss that first shot, oh, my God, you know. Are well, you starting all over again. Oh, I, I feel sick. They didn't sick. have pellets and they didn't have 209 primers and all of this good stuff we have today. Mm-hmm. Those guys had some pretty primitive equipment. So that told you the ones that really made it were great hunters. They knew how to get close to a critter. And they knew they only had that one shot. And a lot of those rifles weren't anything like the muzzleloaders we shoot today. They didn't have sabos. And, you know, they they had a round ball with a patch, and they were looking at 75 yards. They got to do the trick. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's just crazy, crazy. A lot of respect for those guys that did make it, that's for sure. well, let's do this, uh, Wayne. If you have a few more minutes, I'd like to just take a quick commercial break here and then uh, talk about some of your experiences. Uh, my buddy Kevin Reese over at Selmark is a is a friend of yours, and he gave me a couple things that he thought would make for a for a little entertaining content. So, are you cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Oh yeah, I'd be glad to. Excellent. That segment was brought to you by the all-new Scent Blaster. If you use liquid-based attractants in any of your hunting sets, whether that's for deer hogs, predators, bears, whatever. If you use liquid attractants, you need to get a scent blaster. Why? Because it's a better mousetrap. It gets more scent out, and it lasts for up to 48 hours. Scent's expensive, so stop wasting your money. Get more scent out with Scent Blaster, and you can find it at scentblaster.net. It's a better mousetrap. All right, uh, we will be right back with more from the great... J. Wayne Fears, a renowned outdoor writer, lifelong outdoorsman. Got some funny stuff to get into next on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I cut me a cane pole. I'm going catfish fishing. I'm going catfish fishing. Hey, y'all. Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do uh, deer 
hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at huntoutlaw.com. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Things are fixing to get real good In the honky-tonks, you know I am understood Been to the school of hard knocks and hard wood hands Things are fixing to get real good. Yeah, they are. There's a little double D coming at you, Daryl Dodd. Things are fixing to get real good, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show where things are always good and they're fixing to get even better because we've still got award-winning outdoor writer, lifelong outdoorsman, Jay Wayne Fears on the line. And we'll jump back into it with him here momentarily. I'm Cable Smith, by the way, your host. Thanks for being here today. I also want to say thanks to our presenting sponsors, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. And this segment of the presentation is brought to you by Rustic Reminders Taxidermy in Marion, Texas. Josh and Becky Gunther started out as my taxidermists. Now they're my good friends. They do amazing work and have been taking care of me for six or seven years now. They answer the phone when I call, and they offer fast turnaround time. Check them out at gr8mounts.com, locations in San Antonio and Marion, Texas. That's gr8mounts.com. Well, let's jump back into it with one of the most respected outdoor writers out there. He's been doing this a long time, a lot longer than I've been alive, and I'm proud to call him a new friend. So without further ado, uh, Jay Wayne Fierce, thanks for sticking around through the break. My pleasure. Uh, so, like I said, <laughs> I've got a buddy uh, named uh, Kevin Reese over at, at Pulsar uh, Night Vision and Thermal Imaging. And I guess through the outdoor writing community, you guys uh, have known each other for some time. Yeah, he's a good man, yeah. good writer. Yeah. And so he said, uh, you have some, some stories. And first of all, what what's the funniest thing that's happened to you while you've been hunting? There are many stories about it. When you talk, you know, most of the stories, most of the stories are adventures and trying to stay alive. Uh, the funniest stories, you know, I think back in early part of my career when I started working with alligators down in Okefenokee and down there, and we were moving alligators, we knew absolutely nothing about the techniques they have today and, and capturing and moving and 
in working with alligators, and I get some of the funny experiences I ever had with working as a biologist. Is we started out literally at night uh, in a boat, and we'd come alongside these young alligators, alligators six to eight feet in length, and, and jump out on them and try, try to wrestle them and get them <laughs> into the boat. And we it didn't take us very long at all to realize we didn't know what we were doing, and we were going to have to rethink that, or we were getting ready to lose some arms and legs and things like that. <laughs> so there, there was a lot of experiences like that, basically out of ignorance and due at the point. And you got to remember, this is back in the 1960s, late 1960s. And uh, wildlife management wasn't nearly as advanced as it is today. So we had lots of experiences doing that. And I worked with Eastern Diamondback Rattlesnake Research and we didn't know as much as they know today about finding those snakes and capturing them alive and moving them and doing things like that. And we had many, many funny adventures with Eastern Diamondbacks. Some of these snakes weighed 15 to 18 pounds. Goodness gracious. And, you know, they're huge snakes, and uh, they're very dangerous. I had um, one that weighed 18 pounds that I had left out in a truck one day, and it was unusually cold up my office at that time was on the Georgia Florida line and this huge rattlesnake was out in a 55 gallon drum and we had had some pipes to freeze in an auditorium right next to my office and then someone had called a plumber and he'd sent three guys out there to thaw out the elbow under the sink and replace it where it had split. And I didn't know those three guys were back there. And I went and got got this great big rattlesnake and threw it in the auditorium thinking no one was in there. (laughs) And that snake crawled all the way across the auditorium into the kitchen. And I'm sitting in my office, and there's a number of other biologists worked out of the same office. And we hear all this screaming. And we hear wood splinter. And then we hear metal chairs sound like being thrown. And then we hear wood splinter again. And as best we could determine, that huge rattlesnake crawled right up to where those guys were. And evidently, one of them was under the sink. And when they, apparently the snake was right where they were, the one under the sink tried to stand up, lifted the sink out of the cabinet. And there were three trails. There were about 200 uh, folding metal chairs in there. There were three trails across that. And the main doors of the auditorium were French doors, and they'd knock the pins out of those. They'd splintered those doors. <laughs> and the plumber threatened to sue me over this thing. So we had a lot of funny experiences like that, mostly just early days of wildlife management, and I was trying to figure out how to do things correctly. Yeah. Well, so just like we talked about in the previous segment about these early frontiersmen and, and hunters, trappers, you know, and, and the pioneering, pioneering nature of their existence. I mean, you're kind of doing the same thing in wildlife management. <laughs> yeah. We, we didn't have the techniques they got today by any means. Yeah. Just baptism by fire. Yeah, we'll just yep. figure it out as we go. Yeah. That's funny. Um, what about the, uh, the first time you met another iconic outdoor writer, John E. Phillips? <laughs> That's a lot of stories there. <laughs> John Phillips. At that time, I'd been in this business a long, long time, and I was running a wildlife program for Gulf States Paper Corporation. And we had a half million acres in Alabama, and we had built Westerville Hunting Lodge, which was the largest hunting resort east of the Mississippi at that time. And 
I had two operations in Alaska, one in British Columbia and one in Colorado. So I've been doing this a long time, and John Phillips walks into my office. I had never heard of him before, and he's got uh, notepads in his hands. He's got a tape recorder over one shoulder, and he comes in and tells me he's the world's greatest outdoor writer, and he heard I did wildlife work, and he wanted to do a story on me. And I was just taken back by John, just how brash he was. <laughs> and I said, well, who all do you write for? And and he also said he had a syndicated radio show. And John wrote for a couple of little newspapers uh, in Alabama, and he had two or three little uh, local radio stations that he sold material to. And I, if he was coming in sitting down, I looked out the window, and this car was parked right next to my window, and he had a mag- huge magnetic sign on the side of it. It said, John E. Phillips, world's greatest outdoor writer. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just shocked. At this guy. I thought, you got an ego that you haven't earned yet, my friend. So... That was the beginning of me meeting John Phillips, and before that day was over, he, he in the interview, he asked me, what, have you ever written anything? At that time, I'd written two or three books, maybe 1,000, 1,500 magazine articles or something, and he was shocked when I told him that. He said, what's the first thing you recommend me to do? I want to be like you. <laughs> I said, first thing you got to do is stop at a ditch somewhere and get rid of those magnetic signs. <laughs> And I said, if you really want to become an outdoor writer, you come over here and follow me around for a while. I'll try to show you. Uh And from that early beginning, John and I are the very best of friends. Now I've been for 50 years. Wow. (laughs) So uh, I hear you also got to hunt with Fred Bear. Yeah, I hunted with Fred for a number of years, especially during the period of time when, when one of the hunting operations that I was in charge of was Westville Hunting Lodge. And we started Fred Bear bow hunting school there, which Fred would come up and do with me mm-hmm. every year. But, uh, yeah, I started hunting with Fred back in about 68 or 69, again, when I was working down in in South Georgia, right on the Florida line. We were trying to get bow hunting started in that area, and there was a lot of opposition uh, from the gun hunters down there. Mm-hmm. And... Um, they just had a misconception about what bow hunting was all about. So Fred came up. That was when I first got to know him and helped me educate the hunters of that area as to what bow hunting is really about and how there's not going to be deer running around all through the woods with these arrows sticking out of them and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So Fred and I became very, very close friends and were great friends until he passed away. Yeah. Well, and so... You've also written this book, which uh, kind of caught my eye on, on bear hunting, and you talked about Alaska earlier. Um, yeah. So w- what is your experience with, uh, I think it was like polar bear, grizzly bear, brown bear? Yeah, it's the big, the, that's a book I did with North American Hunting Club several years ago, and that book is just, it, we excluded uh, black bear. It's hunting the America's big bears, mm-hmm. the polar bear grizzly and if you want to call brown bears separate you know it's just another big grizzly but um, my experience i started off hunting up up there in british columbia and then alaska and the yukon and 
Northwest Territories as a writer and then later on with Gulf States Paper Corporation. We had two hunting operations in Alaska, one uh, up in the mountains near the Matanuska Glacier east of Anchorage, and we had another hunting camp south of Lake Iliamna down in the Alaskan Peninsula. So we did a lot of bear hunting on both in both of those camps. Hmm. And, you know, we, we also had a hunting operation on the Stikine River in uh, northern British Columbia, and we hunted grizzly there as well. So I have... I have never hunted, I've never taken a polar bear. I don't want anybody to think I have. I haven't. I've been around them a lot. I've had them in the camp. I've had to deal with them, but we've, I, I never hunted. I never had the opportunity to, but I've taken my share of grizzlies. And you hmm. get a lot of experience just guiding other hunters. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, what would you say is uh, North America's most dangerous game animal? Well, I, th- I think probably a game animal. It has. It still has to be a grizzly. You know, you get you get a gri- you get in grizzly country. He's top of the food chain, and you never know what they're going to do. You never know if they're coming into camp or if they're going to be scared out of camp. And I had two or three that I grizzlies I had to shoot for hunters who made bad shots and didn't follow instructions very well. And there's Nothing that'll get your adrenaline flowing faster than a grizzly who's been gut shot and he's coming to you. Mm. You know, you got to make a lot of right decisions real quick. So I would say, when you say game animals, I'd say the grizzly is still probably the most dangerous animal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard uh, I was black bear hunting in Alberta uh, a couple years ago and. Uh, my buddy and I, so it's a two-on-one, you know, one guide for two hunters, and it was a young kid, I think he was 19 years old, but uh, he, he knew his stuff, and he was telling me his goal was to become a full-time guide in the Yukon, and uh, he had a buddy who was hunting, he had a moose hunter there the season before, shot a moose, but it was like one of those deals where they just woke up, the guide stepped out of the tent to take a leak that morning, and boom, there's a moose like right in camp just lucked into it. Well, they shot the moose and, you know, ran a couple hundred yards. And so they come up with a plan to, to ferry this moose back to, to the tent, the, the, uh, the meat. So the, the uh, guide says, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll chop him up. You just, you know, pack him back to the tent. And one, and I guess in that process, they left the gun, you know, sitting probably by the tent. And, uh, he's making a trip back carrying this meat and this grizzly bear just shows up out of nowhere. And, uh, ends up knocking him down off this ridge. Well, the guide starts yelling to get the grizzly's attention. So the grizzly starts running at him, and then he realizes, I don't have a gun. What am I doing, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, <laughs> so he shuts up, and then the guy, he knocks off the ridge. The hunter is screaming because it had broken his leg when he fell off, and he's just screaming, and the grizzly goes back and focuses on him. And he said that he took one swipe of his neck with his paw, basically cut his neck out, killed him instantly, and then the grizzly just left. So it wasn't like a, it was just a territorial thing. Uh, wasn't interested in eating him or anything. Just killed him and, and went on. But the, the the worst part about it for the guide was he couldn't get a signal out for three days. He had to just cover the guy's body and keep crows and, and magpies and other birds off of him until someone finally came in there. And needless to say, he didn't uh, he didn't guide anymore after that experience. But yeah, it was 
just goes to show you how dangerous those those animals are. Yeah, when I was doing that that book, uh, North America's Big Bear book, I I put in probably twenty five or thirty real stories. I interviewed a lot of the guides in Alaska and Canada who had a lot of experience at hunting grizzlies, and um, I got some fantastic stories, kind of like the one you just told. So if, when you're around those critters day in and day out, there's a lot happens. And uh, Cy Ford, the outfitter who taught me more about grizzly hunting than anybody, he met his demise uh, going after a wounded grizzly that one of his hunters had shot. Mm. And he... Cy knew more about grizzlies. He he could think like a grizzly, but one outsmarted him. Mm-hmm. They found they found Cy's body and the bear, uh, but Cy made the mistake of what nobody will ever know. But, uh, yeah, they, they're exciting. And of course, black bear hurt more people every year than grizzlies, simply because we've got black bear all over the place, mm-hmm. more human encounters than the grizzly is. But... Still haven't hunted all of them a lot, and I've been around grizzlies in Europe as well as uh, North America, and they can be temperamental and totally unpredictable, and that's the reason I still think they're extremely dangerous under the right conditions. Oh, sure, sure. So would you recommend uh, for bear, for grizzly country a sidearm or pepper spray, one more than the other, or just, hey, better have both. I would recommend either shotgun loaded with slug and buckshot or either 338 wind make. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I did the book, uh, I could at that time it has changed two or three times since then, but at that time no one had saved themselves with a handgun huh. that we could find. Now, somebody may have, but I uh, did an extensive search uh, through all the law enforcement agencies up there in the far north, and we could not find a documented case where someone had saved themselves with a handgun. So the grizzly's like, "Oh, well, there's a 45. Okay, that's not intimidating at all." <laughs> well, you know, when the grizzly's close enough to use to use a handgun, it's too late. <laughs> even even if you bust his brain pan, there's a good chance uh, that he still has a few seconds left in him, and that that's it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Fascinating stuff there. Um, okay, so let me ask you one more question. As you've made outdoor riding your career, it's your life. Um, do you, what do you think is the current state of outdoor riding? Are we focusing on the right things, um, or do you think we're going in the wrong direction? Well, what I think right now is we're going through a transitional period like I've never seen the 50 years I've been in this business. Mm-hmm. And first of all, we have a lot fewer hunters. Most of my career was in the hunting side, not the fishing side. Uh, In the early days, I did a ton of fishing stuff. But now, it's it's pretty much shooting and hunting. But from a hunting standpoint, uh, there's, you know, we've got about 2 million fewer hunters than we had about five years ago. And hunting is on a decline. You know, our lifestyle today is so different, and there's going to have to be some adjustments made. We're going to have to recruit youngsters if we're going to continue, uh, even in the fishing area. Kids today got their their ears are listening to something totally different. They're not, when I was growing up, if you went out playing in the rocks and the hills and all, you weren't playing. 
but it's changed. And if we don't get this younger generation involved in it, outdoor writing as we have known it is definitely going to change. There are fewer magazines by far than there were in the early part of my career. Uh, fortunately, people like you are still doing some great radio shows, but uh, there's still some good outdoor television. But it's changing, and the number of companies that can support these activities have changed. We don't have as many uh, companies that are in the hunting business as we used to have, and they don't have the budgets they used to have. Mm-hmm. So we're in a transitional period and it behooves everybody to recruit these youngsters, and that's that's a big job because their dads probably didn't hunt or fish. Yeah, and you know everyone has that saying: "Take a kid hunting or fishing." We all say it. How many people actually live that and do it? Exactly. Uh, it sounds great. Hey, take a kid. You know, this is the future. Take a kid hunting. Take a kid fishing. Get. get well, a I try to take some some friends of mine's kids hunting and fishing. They're really not that interested. They really would rather be doing something else if they'll tell you the truth. Hmm. It's sad. It's a sad deal. Uh, I have a four-year-old son, twin daughters that are two and a half, and all they want to do is go dove hunting. I introduced that to them this fall, and oh, my God, they can't shut up about it, (laughs) which makes me feel great, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, you're a good example for them, and you introduced them to them at an early stage, but... So many of the youngsters today are in an urban area that dads don't hunt or fish or do much of anything outdoors. So consequently, these kids that grow up, you know, on a soccer field with earbuds in all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I'm gonna I'll issue this challenge to our listeners, and and because I, you know, I say take a kid hunting or fishing, but at the end of the day, I can take my own kids. So. Everyone with kids, I think we should take someone else's kids. Like your 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 son or daughter's friend, take them with you because they they probably like you said their their dad probably doesn't hunt or fish these days. Yep. You're exactly right. So, I've certainly enjoyed the conversation, Wayne. Uh, it's been it's been uh, cool to to look back at your career and and look back at at even before you the way that uh, not that you're that old, but uh, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the way that the guys did it. The early American outdoorsmen, hunters, frontiersmen, that was a rough life. There's no doubt about it. But somehow they managed to do it, and and, uh, and that's our heritage. So I think it's cool to look back at the way things were compared to how they are today. Yep. Uh, where can folks find your writings? Uh, the best thing to do is, is just Google Amazon J. Wayne Fears, and they'll find all the books there. Uh-huh. And then I've got a website that will direct them to some places. Uh, just go to jwaynefears.com, and they'll find out more there, and they probably won't know. Or they could just Google J. Wayne Fears, and they'll see lots of reprints of magazine articles and stuff like that. Well, very cool. Well, we appreciate all that you've done for uh, for this outdoor heritage that you know I'm fortunate enough to, to get to call it a job. And uh, it's because people like you paved the way, so I certainly appreciate it. Well, we appreciate what you do, Cable. You're talking to the the public, and that's what we need. All right. Well, hey, have a great uh, opening day there for whitetail season. I know that's a a big deal for you, and I hope you tag a big buck. All right. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on the show. All right. Take care. Mm, Bye-bye. All right. The great Jay Wayne Fears. I tell you what, that was pretty cool for me personally. Uh, Certainly enjoyed picking the brain of uh, an old-timer 
both as an outdoorsman and writer. Uh, so hope you all enjoyed it as well. That segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing that they're not making any more of. But Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping Texans finance their own piece of Texas for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. Check them out at LoneStarAgCredit.com. Let's take a quick break. Up next, let's scream in an axis buck with longtime guide Eric Harrison right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Howdy friends, Cable Smith here, and many of you have seen my pictures throughout the last hunting season of my custom 7 mag. That rifle was built by Horizon Firearms. Horizon Firearms is a custom rifle builder here in Texas, located in College Station, and they specialize in extremely accurate custom rifles designed exactly the way you want them. Give them a call at 979-229-4664 or check them out at horizonfirearms.com. I'm drinking champagne and feeling no pain till early morning. Dining and dancing with every pretty girl I can find. Drinking champagne, a classic there from Cal Smith, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you. Thanks so much for stopping in. I do appreciate each and every one of you. Hope that y'all are having a fabulous hunting season as we've got whitetail in full swing for both gun and bow hunters. Waterfowl season is rocking and rolling. Uh, If you're going to harvest that fall turkey before Thanksgiving, now's the time to do that as well. Uh, And then, hey, if you're hitting the lake, those big lunker largemouth, they've got the feed sack on, putting on weight for the winter, and they are chasing shad. Uh, Windblown lake points, great place to target them. But whatever you are doing this week, I hope that you're successful. And remember that it's not all about the kill or the catch, uh, because if that's all you focus on, then you're going to miss out. I tell you what. Um, Okay, we've got uh, an interesting topic to get into here momentarily regarding one of my favorite animals to hunt. But before we do that, this segment of the show brought to you by All Seasons Feeders. If you aren't using the 300 or 600 pound stand and fill, then you're making your life much more difficult than it has to be because you don't need a ladder. You don't need to back up your truck and stand on the tailgate to fill your feeder. You just stand there on your own two feet God gave you, and you fill up the feeder. Plus, it's sturdy enough. Hogs can't knock it over. It's the all-season stand and fill, and you can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. All right, uh, let's go ahead and bring on our next guest. One of my favorite species to hunt on this planet happens to be axis deer, And in Texas, we're kind of spoiled for riches because we have lots of them, both free-ranging and behind high fences. And you can hunt them year-round. So truly, uh, much like feral hogs, it's just something to do year-round that provides delicious food for the table and makes for a fun hunt. 
And if you haven't hunted them during the rut, let me tell you, it's a lot like elk hunting as far as the vocalizations this species makes. They make a, like a roar or a scream. And while I've had the pleasure of sitting in a blind or uh, on the ground bow hunting many times and enjoying that sound, I wasn't aware that anyone had a call out there designed to bring these rutting bucks to you until I was reading uh, Lone Star Outdoor News recently and um, featured in, in the publication was a story on longtime Axis Deer Guide Eric Harrison and his new call. And Eric joins us now. Thanks for being here, man. Oh, thanks, Cable. Uh, looking forward to this and a uh, real honor to be on your show. Absolutely, my friend. Great to have you with us. And uh, we're going to talk about the easy access access to your call here today. Um, very interesting thing to find out about for someone who loves down access to your. But before we do that, tell us a little bit about yourself as far as where you're from and uh, what you enjoy hunting most. I know you're a full-time guide down there at Joshua Creek Ranch in the Texas Hill Country. Yes, sir. Uh, so I work at Joshua Creek. I've been working here for the last 12 years. Before that, I worked uh, down the road in Sisterdale at uh, the Valero Ranch, uh, Diamond K. And before that, I, I came uh, from Kentucky and uh, went to college at Southeastern Illinois, did an internship on the Diamond K, and uh, ended up falling in love with the hill country uh, and staying and pursued um, being a hunting guide as a career and found myself at Joshua Creek for the last 12 years. Um, no regrets there. Love the place. And uh -huh. um, so since I've been in Texas, I, I, I remember, I don't know, it was like 13 years ago, uh, sitting on the back porch. I was an intern at Diamond K. I hear this crazy scream slash roar in the middle of the night on my back porch <laughs> and uh, had no idea what it was. And I turned to one of the, the other gods and I was like, what the hell is that? And uh, my buddy, uh, Justin Hunt, explained to me that is an axis buck screaming. I was like, axis buck screaming? Well, what is an axis buck? So, you know, I'm just from Kentucky. I had no idea about the exotics. I, had, I just knew whitetail and ducks and squirrels and rabbits. Right. So uh, I was introduced to axis and fell in love with the spotted deer. Uh, and um, so I started hunting them, guiding hunts for axis. And I, I started learning about their screams. I noticed that they have a real wide vocabulary. You know, the buck has a roar or a scream, uh -huh. but the uh, the does, they make all sorts of noises. And um, I don't know how many hunts I've been on guiding either for axis buck or axis doe that I heard the does before I saw them. And I, everybody for years has always said it'd be so cool to have an axis buck screaming call and I agreed with them. And so I made it my mission to create one. And, uh, that's what we have here is the easy axis. Yeah. Okay. And we'll, we'll have you actually demonstrate it here in a second, but, uh, going back to that. So that night you're sitting there, you hear that, that screen. Uh, I remember the first time I heard it cause I've spent quite a bit of time. I think I've killed four axis deer, so a fair number. Um, but way different than, uh, whitetail hunting especially during the rut because they do make that vocalization um and i remember the first time i heard it as well it was a uh there's I, I well you'll just blow the call and that's how if people haven't heard it then they pretty much will because it sounds just like one uh so that was Thank the you. first time you heard it what about the first time you actually laid eyes on a an axis buck do you remember that experience oh i do but 
so I've seen a ton of axes and, uh, you know, just guiding them. You see them, you how you make your living, you, you learn them, their habitats, what they do. It helps you be a more successful hunter, the better you know them. But something that stands out in my mind, I, uh, I was guiding a youth hunt. The kid shot a 36-inch axis buck. Huh. He was an old buck. I think the buck was seven years old, palmated uh-huh. on its tips. It looked like he was wearing machetes as antlers, 36-inch <laughs> machetes. It was awesome. But the buck stepped out of the brush and uh, gave a huge scream. First time I ever saw a buck scream in a field. And that was that was something awesome to see. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Well, and so Joshua Creek is a is a low fence place. So these are free range access deer. Joshua and, Creek is low fence, thirteen hundred acres, low fence. Yeah, uh, we have a ton of feed. Uh, we have running water. We have a lot of grass fields. We have the best uh, habitat for access bucks. And, and I was going to ask you in your time and in, in your thirteen or so years here in Texas, um, have you noticed? access populations because i mean you can just drive around the hill country in some places and just see them with some regularity so do you think that they've increased their numbers or kind of staying the same what are your thoughts on that i think the uh, i think the access numbers are growing i think they're spreading uh-huh. i think um they outbreed the whitetail i think josh creek has more access than whitetail and uh yeah, their, their their population, I can say, is most definitely growing. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Um, well, let's let's uh, let's talk about some of these these vocalizations. Um, first of all, there's a lot of different applications, ways that you use this call in your hunting setups. So, to talk about just the most common. So, you're you're guiding a guy on a hunt um, this time of year, and I was surprised to say, or surprised for you to say that, yeah, you you actually scream them in pretty much year round. So, um, talk about what you would do right now if you're taking a guy in a hunt and, and you're breaking the call out to, to try to get a buck into a rifle range. Okay. So, you know, it's, uh, it's November, uh, we're on the, the downward slide of the majority of bucks being in rut, but they, there's still some bucks in rut. So if I was going to the field, uh, of course, I've got my easy access call in my backpack. Mm-hmm. Or just back and, up, just so that our listeners know. Who, if you haven't hunted access deer, the, the actual rut is in the summer. I mean, yes. July yes. and August are prime time. Prime time. So, bucks, uh, May, June, July. June is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. June is the peak of their rut because you have 70, 75% of the bucks rutting the does in heat. It's, it's the best time to use easy access. But you can use it year-round, and it's not necessarily used to call a buck into 15 yards. Um, if the bucks aren't rutting that hard, I've gone out blowing my call. I've noticed I've gotten other deer in the area to scream at me. Not necessarily come in, but the call actually got the other buck to scream. And it was a way to locate the bucks in the area. Um, right now, you know, I, I would go out – if. If I was sitting at a corn feeder or protein feeder like a, a normal Texan does, and if nothing comes into the feeder, if it's dead, I, I'd blow the call, see what happens, see if I can get a buck to come out of the thick brush and see who's making making the roar. Mm-hmm. Now, if I have a buck screaming, I most definitely will, will scream back at it. Uh, that's when the call works best. If you have a buck that's already worked up, he's going to be screaming. And every time he screams, 
I try to scream right after him. I even try to cut his scream off. If right. he's going to scream three times, I got that call ready. And if he screams once, I'll blow. I'll scream three times and try to cut him off. To him, that's insulting. Yeah, make him so, angry. Yeah, make him angry. And for instance, uh, this was about four weeks ago. It was in October. I was guiding a hunt. I had a buck far, far away, seven to nine hundred yards. Every time the buck would scream, I would scream after the buck three times. He'd scream three times. I would scream three times, and then he would rebuttal scream three times. He would scream every twenty to thirty minutes. It took three hours of that, and the buck was in my field and presented a shot for my shooter. Hmm. So. The buck didn't come charging in and try to jump in the blind with me. It took three hours to get him in the field. But I, I truly believe because I kept him occupied calling right after he would call, he, he, he came my way. All right. Well, let's, let's hear that vocalization. Let's hear the axis scream. All right. So here it goes. I've got uh, the easy axis call. That's my call right there. That's easy access. It sounds just like him, man. It's like oh, thank you very yeah, much. Absolutely the same thing as uh, when I'm sitting there at Coons Canyon Ranch in the Texas Hill Country, and they're firing off. I mean, it sounds exactly like that. So you sent me an easy access. I've watched the uh, instructional video. There's probably a bit of a learning curve here, but I'm going to give it a whirl. So maybe you can uh, give me a little critique after I embarrass myself. Ah. All right, you sound like a pterodactyl. All right, all right, all right. Let's do it again. So, a little better. A little bit better. Um, Still terrible, right, but a little better. Let's um, let, let let's do a little critique in here. So you're starting off blowing, and then you start you start putting air through the call, uh-huh. and then you find your peak, and then you drop off. Let's let's try hitting your peak right off right off the bat and dying off. Okay, so coming there. in hot. All right. Come in hot. You're a buck screaming. Okay, that's better. Now, as you come in hot, I want you to put a little growl in the back of your in the back of your throat, and that's going to get that that crow sound out of it. Hopefully, that was better. The crow you. was at the end that time, though. It was. <laughs> Keep growling and fade out. Don't come to a complete. That's better. That's better. Okay, I'm just not getting the fading out correctly, but uh, we'll spare our listeners any more abuse to their ears, and uh, I'll work on it on my own time. But, you know, there's a learning curve there, just like duck calling, although this seems a little more user-friendly than, you know, just picking up a duck call and starting cold turkey. Uh, But, hey, let's do this. Let's take a break, Eric. Uh, Come back and continue the discussion on how you use this call to bring those big bucks in. And I think you'll also use rattling horns on occasion, which I didn't know uh, people did for Axis Deer either. So are you cool to stick around for another segment? Most definitely. Perfect. And that segment was brought to you by the all-new Drive Over Chalk. If you haul an ATV, Jeep, four-wheeler, golf cart, or otherwise, protect that investment with the all-new Drive Over Chalk. You install it on your flatbed. You drive your vehicle over the DOC, and it is docked. It's not moving. 
No more ratchet straps or tie-downs. You can find it at driveoverchalk.com and get free shipping if you use the promo code LONESTAR or CABLE. Up next, we continue the Axis Steer conversation with longtime guide and call innovator Eric Harrison right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cause it's a Texas thing Long necks and a western swing It's the river walking Barton Springs And a cold old star Hey y'all, Cable here for Three Curl Outfitters, and whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, Three Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean, just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields, or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, threecurl.com to book your next hog hunt. Hi, I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do a deer, hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one-morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at HuntOutlaw.com. This is Greg Biffle, driver number 16, 3 and 4 Fusion, and thank you for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I'm still hanging on Someone who's long gone Who abandoned the house But left the lights on I don't think I'll fall in love with you I was on my way I was trying to But that's the pride of El Paso, Texas, the Dirty River Boys bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris, our presenting sponsors as well, as we are rocking and rolling, talking all things access deer hunting with guide and call innovator Eric Harrison. But before we jump back into that discussion, this segment of the presentation is brought to you by Rudy's True Texas Style Barbecue and Dallas Safari Club. 
I'd like to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of people who are passionate about hunters' rights, conservation, and education. To do so, check us out at biggame.org. Okay, uh, well, Eric, we appreciate you sticking around through the break. Let's jump back into it. We previously discussed how you came up with the easy access access to your call, and I know that it's been an invaluable tool for you year-round, but do you ever mix it up and implement other things into your setup, say like uh, rattling horns like you would for whitetail? Yes, sir. Whenever I know the buck's close enough to hear, I rattle. I'll scream, then rattle every time. And um, I've noticed, all right, when I first developed the call and went out there trying to see if it worked, I noticed whenever I blew the call, I would see axes. It wasn't until I started blowing the call, rattling, and also I'll even use the uh, Primo's Hyper Hot cow call for elk. I'll give high pitch squeaks. Uh-huh. Whenever I would combine all three of those, I was getting bucks to come in within 15 yards. And that's whenever I knew I was on to something. Huh. Wow. And so do you have any YouTube or any videos of uh, of these bucks coming in? I sure do. Uh, so two weeks ago, Amber Haynes, owner of McKinney Quinn and myself, were on the front page of Lone Star Outdoor News. And she has her uh, trophy access buck. It was her first buck she ever killed off her, off her uh, home ranch. And uh, we called that buck in together. Uh, she shot it with a rifle. We called it in. Uh, I was using the easy access roar. The buck was screaming that morning. Every time he would scream, I would scream. We did a, a um, we weren't in a blind. Uh, she was about 10 yards in front of me set up. It took about 10 minutes. I, he screamed three times. I screamed back at him three times. After each time he would scream, I would start rattling and scream. I, I kept noticing he was getting closer and closer. And uh, she ended up shooting the buck at 50 yards. It probably would have come in closer. But uh, that was a very good, successful hunt. And uh, I also have that hunt on YouTube under Easy Access Kills. But you, you can also, if you if you keep searching YouTube, you'll see um, Easy Access Close Encounters. That's with uh, Monty Cluck on his family property there in Fisherdale. And you'll see me call a buck into 15 yards with a bow. And that, that was very exciting. But I've had so many different experiences using easy access deer call get next to come in in different ways it's a tool that it's a, it's a multi-use tool you can locate deer with it you can draw deer in with it um at joshua creek i've, I've had um, a few hunts where uh, hunters miss the deer on their first shot the access buck so when they when they shoot they miss i'll give a roar with my call mm-hmm. and stop the buck to present another shot it's worked for me four different occasions. That right there is a tool. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is so, uh, it's so different than, you know, the way that we hunt whitetail is, you know, we're, we're vocal during their peak breeding season, like, you know, rattling during the rut, uh, grunting, all that stuff. But here you've got a species you can hunt year round and apparently they respond to vocalization year round. So very different. Very different. But for uh, a hunter this time of year, I would recommend uh, cold calling. Um, so if you're out walking around and you get in an area that you know there's de- access deer bedded up, and uh, if you just sit and you give three three bursts of screams every five minutes, sit there for 20 minutes. If a deer doesn't come in within 20 minutes, move spots. Mm-hmm. I've had a lot of success that way. This is a lot like well, turkey hunting, spring turkey hunting. 
it's, that's what I love about love turkey hunting. That's yeah. what I like about this easy access call. It's you get out there and you go ask the deer you're trying to give them to come in. Yeah. Oh, don't don't be wrong. I'll, I'll sit at a feeder and wait for a, a deer to come in. But I li- like turkey hunting or hunting elk during the rut. I mean, I like taking the game to the animal. You know, running again, yeah. being mobile. Uh, well, uh, sitting at a corn feeder, I, I sit over a corn feeder and protein feeder. I love it. You know, uh, welfare bring. The, <laughs> get those deer trained to come into the food um but like there's those days where i don't have deer like right now i had we had a uh really good acorn drop i have access not coming to the protein feeders or the corn feeders and uh that's when you pull out the call you let you let the access deer know there's a buck in the area screaming wanting to party get the other deer in coming into play yeah uh, well, a couple other things I, I just wanted to ask. What is the craziest thing you've seen uh, an Axis buck do in response to this call? Okay, crazy. Well, coming into 15 yards, I thought was pretty crazy. Absolutely. Um, easy Axis close encounters. That was awesome. But, um, okay, so a successful hunt with Paul Prazen. Uh He's on Facebook. You can see his buck. But um, the buck was screaming from afar. Every time I would scream, he would scream. I really made worked him up, made him mad. Before he came into the field, right before we shot him, all you could hear was him banging up trees and screaming. He was <laughs> so mad at that call. That was pretty unique. Oh, yeah, yeah. Another hunt I was on, um, I was calling, rattling. We were cold calling. There was nothing around. And I hear this weird vocal high pitch noise and i turned to my hunter i was like did you hear that and he said yeah it was a pheasant I'm like, that was not a pheasant <laughs> so we look out behind us and there is a axis doe walking into us talking to us and that that made my day uh for her to be talking to me and not it wasn't a warning bark it was it was a noise i've never heard before hmm. and she had a fawn with her and she came into the field and then she brought out some younger bucks with her. It was pretty cool. Interesting, yeah, for sure. Uh, have you ever seen these um, access deer get into an altercation with a whitetail in all the time that you've been out there? I've, I've, when the feeder goes off and there's a ton of whitetail come underneath the corn feeder, I notice that the uh, axis are not afraid to walk up there and eat. But if there's a ton of axis that come to the corn feeder first, I notice the whitetail keep their distance. Yeah, I've never seen a fight. I just I think it's an unspoken stay away. Um, They're more assertive, that's they for have. sure. Uh, yeah, I, would, I, I wouldn't want to fight a 200 pound axis. No. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, it's kind of wrapping things up here. What is your favorite axis to your recipe? Oh God! So you uh, take your axis back strap. And you get your um, your pan on your stove just super hot with olive oil, and you just sear the outside of the back strap, and you throw it in the oven for nine, at 520. For how long? For nine minutes. Uh-huh. You pull it out, you let it rest on the counter, and then you use raspberry chipotle sauce. Raspberry chipotle sauce, okay. Yeah, that sounds awesome. So okay, so pans just sear the outside. Yeah, you you want to scab you want to scab that outside. See, like when you cook something on the skillet, it cooks it from the outside in. 
so you're 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 locking in all those juices. Oh yeah. You cook something in the oven, it cooks it from the inside out. And uh, if you if you cut into the meat too soon, blood will just explode out of it. But if you let it rest on your counter, it won't overcook. And it'll be perfectly red. I li- I like medium rare. I like rare. So. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. If it's uh if it's over medium rare, it's burned in my opinion. So. <laughs> I agree with you. <laughs> okay, and so uh, Eric, contact info website. Where can folks find the easy access? Well, I'm on, I'm on the internet. I've got a page on the internet. It's www.accessdeercollar.com. You can uh, also Google search Easy Access Deer Collar. I'm on Facebook, um, Easy Access, and I'm also on YouTube. Uh, if you type in Easy Access Deer Calls, how to use, and then I also have some hunts out there. Yeah. Okay. I would yeah. love I would love to share my hunts. Uh, the call, you know, it's so new. There's so many. It can be used in different ways. It's just getting out there and practicing and learning how to use the call is the hardest part. And how much is it? Learning how to blow it. The call is 25 bucks. A really cool product that uh, I think I'm going to practice up a little bit more, but uh, absolutely, I feel like this thing is going to work for me. Well, next time you're in the Hill Country, look me up. My buddy Glenn, he's a, he's a member of Joshua Creek, and he lives right there in Comfort. So All right I'll get on. down there. All right, man. Well, hey, good luck. Happy hunting. Thanks again. Actually, why don't you blow that thing one more time for us? Just a All right, here it goes. Easy <laughs> And I think I'll spare our listeners uh, making them listen to me do it again. But well, uh, Smith, thank you so much for uh, for letting me be part of your show. I really do appreciate you. Yeah, man. Likewise. Thanks for jumping on. Yes, sir. There he goes, Eric Harrison, longtime guide and creator of the Easy Access Access Call. Uh, awesome stuff there. And I know that thing is going to work for me uh, once I practice up a little more. Sorry for making your ears bleed this morning with uh, my horrible attempt. Uh, that was actually the only the second time I've tried to blow the call. So i uh, got some work to do, that's for sure. But anyway, that segment brought to you by the new Pulsar Trail XP50. It's a game changer in thermal imaging technology when it comes to an optic uh, it's the scope I have on my AR. I've been tearing up the coyotes lately. I've posted a couple videos on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, but check it out, the Pulsar Trail. And if you tell them that I sent you, just use that promo code Lone Star. You'll get 20% off of your order of any Pulsar night vision or thermal optic. And you'll get free shipping. And you can find it at PulsarNV.com. Uh, thanks to Eric, as well as our other guest, Outdoor Legend Jay Wayne Fears. It was a pleasure to uh, to have him join us as well. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. You may want this battle, baby. Don't